Our sermon series, we began last week on the Apostles' Creed, uh, a unique uh, sermon series for us. Normally, uh, if you're a visitor here, we just kind of walk through books of the Bible or walk through sections of the Bible, sort of chapter and verse at a time. Uh, for example, we just finished up a series on 1 Timothy. We started in chapter 1, verse 1, went all the way through chapter 6, verse 21. Uh, this series and over the next several weeks, we're doing something a little different. We're taking one of the historic creeds of the faith. The Apostles' Creed was written in the third century, so not long at all after the uh, apostles were alive. Um, this creed was written, and we're just sort of working through it line by line. Um, I wanted to share with you one of the reasons why the early church felt the need to create this creed. Uh, for example, to just think back to our letter from the last sermon series, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 20. One of the second to last verse the apostle has for his young protege, Timothy, and he says this to him, O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you, avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. And you can see the translators even put those scare quotes in there around knowledge because it is knowledge falsely so-called. Um, it has been true ever since the birth of the church um, that God's word has been twisted and taught to mean things that it doesn't mean. Um, things have been claimed to be true about Jesus that are not true about Jesus. And so what the early church felt the need to do was to really crystallize in a very concise way, just to sort of summarize uh, what Christians ought to believe, sort of the essentials of the faith boiled down into some really clear statements. Um, so that's the Apostles' Creed. Last week we focused on just the first four words of the creed, uh, I believe in God, and today we're going to see that uh, the creed starts to get more specific about who God is. So let's read through the creed once more, and then we'll begin. Ready? I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy universal church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Amen. Perhaps there's no other question more important to life than who is God. Every religion offers an answer to this question. Many people speculate and share opinions on this question. All of us have at least wondered, who is God? Well, the Christian faith offers an entirely unique answer to this most important question. There is one God who eternally exists as three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. 
And the well-known title that we've given to this truth is the Trinity. And what we mean by the Trinity is that God is a tri-unity. He is one eternal being who is also three eternally existing distinct persons. The Father, Son, and Spirit. And this is an entirely unique answer to the question, who is God? No other religion comes close to even claiming anything like this, the Trinity. Other religions will say, like us, that God is all-powerful. We as Christians also believe that. Some speculate about God that he is all-loving, and certainly the Bible, too, teaches that as well. Some religions even have a Christ figure who supposedly sacrificed himself for his followers, and of course the cross and Jesus' death is central to our faith. But despite some of those commonalities, no other religion, no other spirituality claims anything like the Trinity. There is one God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit existing in an eternal relationship of perfect love and harmony and joy with one another. And perhaps the foundational scripture passage relaying the truth of the Trinity is Matthew chapter 28, verse 19. If you've been following Christ for any amount of time, you're probably familiar with this verse. It's the Great Commission. Jesus is sending out. He's commissioning his disciples. And he says to them, Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. So in this verse, we see both the oneness and the threeness of God. Jesus says that the disciples are to be baptized into the one name, singular, of the three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, plural. So we see the truth of the Trinity right here. God is one. He has one name, and he is also three distinct persons, the Father, Son, and Spirit. Let me give you another example from the Gospel of John, chapter 14, verse 11, a verse that especially highlights the unity and diversity of the Father and the Son. Jesus tells his disciples in that verse, he says, Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. And theologians refer to this dynamic as the mutual indwelling of Jesus in the Father and the Father in Jesus. They mutually indwell one another. And this speaks of their intimate relationship with one another. It speaks of their deep unity with one another. And at the same time, unified as they are, Jesus is still Jesus and the Father is still the Father. They are still two distinct persons, and this is exactly what the doctrine of the Trinity tells us. Despite their profound unity, and their all equally being God and sharing in the divine nature, the Father, Son, and Spirit are still three distinct persons. Church, this is our glorious God who is unlike any other, the triune Lord who exists in an eternal relationship of love, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I want you to notice what many scholars have pointed out, the distinctly Trinitarian shape of the Apostles' Creed. So the statement flows from, I believe in God the Father, to belief in Jesus Christ, His Son, and then finally towards the end, I believe in the Holy Spirit. 
And that middle section on Jesus takes up most of the creed, but there's still a Trinitarian flow from the Father to the Son to the Holy Spirit. And structuring the creed like this is a subtle acknowledgement of how the Trinity is the essence of who God is. And this morning we're especially focusing on this first part of the creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. And our plan is to walk through Psalm 33, and we're going to see how God our Father gives us every reason to worship Him. So the psalmist is going to call us to worship, and then he lays out at least three attributes of God and that these should propel us to worship Him. So look with me at the first couple verses of Psalm 33, verses 1 through 4. The psalmist says, Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to the Lord with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. So this is a call to worship, right? He says, shout, give thanks, make melody, sing, play skillfully to the Lord. That's verses 1 through 3. Then he says in verse 4, For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. And that word for could also be translated because. So shout, give thanks, sing, make melody to the Lord because his word is upright, because he works faithfully. So he's given us reasons that we should worship God based on God's attributes, and that's what he's going to do in the rest of the verses of the psalm. And the first characteristic of God the Father that moves us to worship Him is His power. His power in making all things by His Word. So let's read verse 4 again, and the next several verses that are going to flow out of it. The psalmist says, Sing, shout, worship God, for the word of the Lord is upright. All His work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. By the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. So these verses here, they confirm what the creed says. God the Father Almighty is maker of heaven and earth. And God's creative power is accomplished merely through his word. Merely through the breath of his mouth. God our Father literally generates. He brings life simply by speaking it into existence. And this is known as the doctrine of creation Ex nihilo. Ex nihilo is a fun Latin phrase that simply means out of nothing. Creation ex nihilo, creation out of nothing. Listen to how the writer of Hebrews puts it in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3. He says, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. So the writer is saying, everything that we can see, 
Everything that we can see that has been made by God's word, it was all made out of things that are not seen, things that are not visible. In other words, God created everything out of nothing. Michael Bird is an Australian theologian, and he shares something kind of silly but maybe helpful and hopefully memorable for capturing this truth. He says this, quote, I heard a joke a while ago about a group of scientists who challenged God to a contest over who could design and build a better human being. God happily accepted the challenge and met the scientists at the designated laboratory where the contest would take place. God then took a clump of clay and began to build Adam 3.0 when he suddenly realized that the scientists were doing the exact same thing. So God promptly walked over to the scientist's table, took their clay away from them, and said, Ahem, excuse me, but this is my clay. I made it for myself. You go and make a man out of your own clay. And the contest was over. Bird goes on to say, Human beings are made and designed to be clever. We can map DNA sequences. We uncover cosmic mysteries of the universe like dark matter. We theorize quantum mechanics and even create artificial intelligence. However, when it comes to making something out of nothing, we are not in God's league. So he's saying as humans, we make stuff. We make some amazing stuff. But we always have to use other stuff to make the stuff we make. Not so with God. Not so with the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. His power generates life, ex nihilo, creation out of nothing, simply by his word. And the psalmist in Psalm 33 is calling us, verse 8, to stand in awe of him. To stand in awe of him because of all that he has made. A lot of us... Um, In just a few moments, a lot of us are going to leave here after the service. We're going to pick up our kids in kids' ministry. They're going to hand us some artwork that they made over the last hour. And that artwork artwork is going to have some special meaning because they're cute and they're kids. But we are probably not going to stand in awe at their creation. It's probably not going to be jaw-dropping. But friends, let's consider the beauty Consider the complexity and vibrancy and majesty and glory and color and texture and design and order of all that God has made. From the most microscopic cells in our body to the largest supergiant stars in the universe, God's almighty power is on display through all he's made. Let's stand in reverent fear. Let's stand in awe of all that he's done. Secondly, the psalmist calls us to worship him because of his wisdom. God's wisdom is seen in carrying out his eternal plans. Our father is strong and our father is wise, the psalmist says. So let's look again, starting in verse 10. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing, he says. The Lord frustrates the plans of the peoples. But the counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of God's heart endure to all generations. 
Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man from where he sits enthroned. He looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all, he observes their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation and by its great might it cannot rescue so on the one hand the psalmist says that man's plans are brought to nothing our strategies to dominate through weapons of war our goals to triumph through our own genius those plans are all frustrated he says but on the other hand the lord's counsel stands forever The plans of his heart endure from one generation to the next. Another way to put it is God's to-do list gets done. Have you ever had one of those days you started out all excited, energized, ready to knock out some projects? Whether it's work for your job or chores at your house, you got your schedule cleared, you got your to-do list in front of you. You are ready to knock each one out. You're going to close the deal at work. You're going to finish the project assignment, or you're going to clean the house, wash the dog, do the dishes, vacuum the car. It's this great, glorious plan set out right in front of you. You've got all the time in the world to get it done. And then, all of a sudden, you don't. One of your coworkers gets sick. One of your contractors doesn't show up. A pipe bursts in the basement, so you gotta deal with the plumber. Your vacuum breaks, so you gotta live with a dirty car. Royal Oak Schools calls it a snow day, so I gotta stay home with my kids and can't get anything done, even though it's barely snowing. (laughs) Our plans get frustrated. Our plans get frustrated. Even our best made clear path to getting them done plans get frustrated. Why? Because we're not God. We're not as powerful as God to accomplish all of our plans. We're not as wise as God to make the right plans. And you got to see what is central to the purposes and plan of our wise father. Listen to what the way the apostle puts it in Ephesians chapter 1 verses 3 through 11. The apostle says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, our Father who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as our Father chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Jesus, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. So you heard it there over and over again. 
that God our Father, even before the foundation of the world, he planned, he purposed, he willed to adopt us into his family, to redeem us from the power of our sin, to lavish us with his grace. And this plan has been accomplished with the coming of Jesus, with his life, death, and resurrection. So hear me on this, church. Take heart. Receive the encouragement of this truth. God's eternal, unstoppable, unfailing plans, they center on Jesus, and that plan has been fulfilled and will continue to be fulfilled. The plans of our favorite politicians for societal improvement often don't work. Amen? The plans of your parents for you to get the best job and go to the perfect school aren't always in the cards for you. Our plans for ourselves, to find a spouse, to have kids, to stay healthy, to get that promotion, to retire at a certain age with a certain amount of money, whatever it may be that we've dreamed up, it may not work out. These plans get frustrated, but the counsel of the Lord stands forever. The good purposes of our Father to redeem us, to adopt us, to grow us in holiness, that purpose will stand. That purpose he is accomplishing despite the world falling apart all around us. Take heart. Receive the encouragement of that truth. And all this is leading up to our last point. Not only are the Father's plans crafted with wisdom, not only are his plans accomplished by his strength and power, but all of his plans are for our good, for the good of those who hope in him. That leads to the last point, the last few verses of Psalm 33. God's love is seen in delivering those who hope in him. So listen once more to Psalm 33, the final several verses, verses 18 through 22. The writer says, Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him. The eye of the Lord is on those who hope in his steadfast love that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in the famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. Our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us even as we hope in you. So the writer here mentions the danger of death. He talks about the trial of famine. And he says that they are in the oftentimes agonizing position of needing to wait on the Lord. Nevertheless, he says their hearts are glad in him. He says that they trust in his holy name. He says that they take hope in God despite whatever difficulty. And it's because he has this confidence in God's steadfast love that he also has this confidence God will lovingly deliver him from famine and death. And it's striking the way he puts it here. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him. That's the way he expresses God's love and affection for his people. The eye of the Lord is upon us. This made me think about how there's now this prevalence of cameras and security systems that allow us to keep our eye on whatever it is that we care so much about. Certainly for new parents, a baby monitoring system includes a camera that's now an absolute necessity so they can view the baby at all times. 
or for a family like ours that get new packages delivered to our house almost daily, we have the ring doorbell that includes a camera so that we can keep an eye on our precious cargo. Or a few weeks ago, we had some friends travel to Taiwan to adopt their daughter. And this family also owns a pet bunny. His name is Momo. And they asked us to bunny sit while they were gone, to go over to their house every day for half an hour or so, to feed the bunny, to socialize with him. And I went over there one day, and I noticed that above the bunny's little play area was a camera. So sure enough, all the way around in Taiwan, our friends were able to keep an eye on their beloved bunny in Madison Heights. Brothers and sisters in Christ, (laughs) this is the kind of love the Father has for us. The eye of the Lord is upon us. We are not outside of his sight. Yes, there may be times where we don't feel seen. There may be times where we feel lost and far from God. Maybe it's because someone hurt us. Maybe it's because we keep falling into sin. Maybe it's just that we're walking through a difficult season of circumstances. A time when it's easy to think, God, are you seeing all of this? Are you aware of what's going on in my life? Well, it was during a season like that when the psalmist remembers when he celebrates the eye of the Lord is upon me. His steadfast love is all around me. He will deliver my soul from death and keep us alive through this famine. The psalmist has this confidence. And we ultimately can have this confidence because of the death-defeating death of Jesus. Jesus was made alive even after his death and burial. His soul was delivered from death, and so too will be all who trust in him. And so I call on you now, church. I call on all of us now. Receive the love of the Father as expressed through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Behold the Father's wise plans from eternity past, now accomplished, now finished, through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Let's stand in awe of his creative power. Let's stand amazed at the power of his spoken word to bring life to the universe and bring salvation to our souls. Pray it would be so for you and me. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.